So yesterday I recorded a solo episode of the Weekly Havoc because I really wanted something to air on 9-11 itself. And I am recording this episode on 9-11, but it will come out on, uh, uh, you guys are hearing this now, on Tuesday uh, or later um, after 9-11. But the other reason I wanted something to air on 9-11 is I have a lot of baggage, let's call it, about 9-11. So I kind of wanted to air that on its own separate episode and just bloviate uh, and scream in the wind, as it were and uh, not bring that baggage onto our roundtable discussion. And I'm glad I didn't because I'm in Kefel and Marshall McGurk had a lot to say and I didn't want to detract and I um, I think that was the right call. Both of those guys, uh, I, I'm in, is a return guest. He hasn't been on since I think week two or week three of the show. So it was great having him back. Marshall, this was his first time on the show, uh, which was Incredibly risky as an active duty army officer. Um, he knew I could, I, I could uh, put him in a compromising situation with any question at any point, and he still trusted me enough to come on the show and, and take that leap of faith. And I was glad he did. And uh, these guys really um, gave an incredibly thoughtful treatment to nine eleven. There's an awful lot of uh, meat on the bone in this particular episode, uh, talking about the missteps and successes that the United States has had since 9-11, what 9-11 should mean to somebody and what it has meant to each of those guys, uh, what their personal 9-11 stories are, which I found um, wildly different and equally compelling from both of them. I think this is an episode that has a lot for uh, everybody, but certainly for civilians. Um, I think they both spoke eloquently about what uh, 9-11 means for veteran uh, both law enforcement and military veteran, I should mention. Uh, and I think as a result, civilians will gain a lot of uh, understanding and insight uh, about that and and kind of help them appreciate 9-11 even more. So an enjoyable episode. I think you guys are going to really like it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of The Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff, writers, and friends at Havoc Journal and try to make a little order out of chaos. Ayman Kefel is an Army veteran. He was deployed during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2005, became a police officer in 2007 after eight years of military service. He's worked in the patrol division in a plainclothes anti-crime unit as a Metro SWAT operator and as a detective in a major crimes unit. Also a narcotics task force detective with the DEA and as an operator with DEA's special response team. He also helped organize special response team operations in southern New England. That is too many acronyms and that just is too much of a tongue twister to say with no – with not enough rehearsal, I guess, I'm in. But nonetheless, it's an impressive resume. He's currently the officer in charge of the problem-oriented policing unit. He is a law enforcement firearms instructor, a less-than-lethal weapons instructor, a certified use-of-force instructor at his police department, and of course, he is also, not least significantly, the host of Project Sapient. Welcome back, Ivan. Oh, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And Marshall McGurk is 
I'm going to say finally joining us. That's not on his part, but that's on our part. Because almost every week we were like, hey, do you think Marshall McGurk could do it? And every week, uh, for one reason or another, either he wasn't invited or Charlie nixed it ahead of time. I'm just throwing Charlie under the bus since he's not here to defend himself. But we're thrilled Marshall is finally here. He is an Army officer, an active duty Army officer. Um, He is currently working as an observer coach trainer at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Dear God, who did you piss off? And he's been on active duty for 15 years. He has two deployments to Iraq, clearly one long one to Louisiana as well, and one deployment to Afghanistan. He was a second-year cadet at West Point on 9-11, which we'll get to, obviously, shortly. Um, And again, just a reminder to everybody, because he's on active duty, his views are not necessarily going to reflect the views of the Army or the Department of Defense, which is that practice stance of radical neutrality that Charlie Fain has mastered on this podcast many times before. But Marshall, it's a pleasure to finally have you on. Oh, it's great to be here, Chris, and uh, great to be here with Iman. So uh, looking forward to it. Yeah. And as I said up front, um, this is um, bittersweet. Uh, you know, a, this 20-year anniversary of 9-11 is a great opportunity um, for us to cover so much ground that we were looking forward to who we would have on and who could speak at length about it. Obviously, the circumstances of 9-11 uh, dampen the mood a lot, and the circumstances of this particular 9-11 even more so. So I think let's start with the most low-hanging fruit. Let's talk about not the original 9-11, 2001. And now, sitting here, what does that original date mean to you? Um, Iman, let me start with you. So that original date, what what it means to me is um, I come from a Middle Eastern background, and that to me was uh, because my, my family, we, we escaped civil war in Africa. We escaped civil war out of Lebanon, came here in the uh, early 90s. And to me, uh, 9-11 was the day when that stuff that happens overseas came to the U.S., and uh, and that, that's what it meant to me. It meant it meant it followed me home, you know. And uh, like every other uh, young American at that time in '01, raised my right hand and said, "I'm not going to put up with it." I did not realize exactly how personal that was for you. I want to get into that a little bit more, but let me first ask: Where were you on 9/11? Where were you at in life? Where were you at geographically? What was going on for you at that point? I was actually a freshman in college. I was uh, just going into uh, my morning class, and I see people running. At the time, I you know I wasn't listening to radio. I didn't. I was just walking out, and um, at the time, uh, kids were running out of the school, uh, saying, "Hey, the school's closed. We're under attack." And I'm like, "What the hell's going on?" So when I uh, turned on the news, I realized what was going on. Were you already inclined towards a military law enforcement lifestyle, or? Was this a real gear shift for you when that happened? It was a real gear shift. Actually, I was in college for uh, psychology and anthropology, and uh, and my the military has always been there. I was actually talking to a few recruiters from different uh, aspects. One for me to travel all over and really, you know, get to see the uh, the world as the military likes to sell itself. I later learned that the army doesn't send you anywhere nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, that that kind of you know put a damper on that. But um, you know th- that was kind of like my game plan, and and I never had law enforcement in my on my mind at all. Uh, I was just you know going. I, I would say going through the motions of getting a degree and doing the nine to five type work. 
So Marshall, for you, obviously you're at West Point as a second year cadet. So you were already thinking about the military, but what did that specific event then mean for you? So it, you asked a really powerful question up front, which was what it, what it means now, 20 years later. Um, and it helps me to reflect that I've spent the majority of my adult life in the military uh, by choice. And that's a very, I'll say, let's say it's a heavy realization, um, especially as I'm 38, but in, you know, in the army terms, I think you gentlemen can all understand from your professions that that's a little bit older. Um, and so when you're thinking about classmates and friends and soldiers, uh, in their, in their teens, in their early twenties who, uh, who didn't make it home or who, or who made it home with, with physical wounds. And, and, and what I, you know, Marshall McGurk's assessment is that we all left a piece of ourselves over there in those various countries. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty stark, uh, statement about commitment, um, about resilience, about the, uh, the loyalty of the American people and those that continue to volunteer and continue to serve. Uh, and I have just been absolutely blessed to serve with wonderful officers and wonderful soldiers over the last 20 years. Cause it is, it is truly gone a generation. Um, and then reflecting back on where I was, you know, again, like, like Eamon, I was in, I was in college and I was walking to math class, uh, my first class of the day. And I was a second year cadet. So you can kind of talk with your classmates. I wasn't a, a plebe marching, you know, eyes locked forward, you know, not saying anything. I was able to, you know, say hello to classmates and things like that. And you'll walk in. That's into why we didn't invite any of them. No good memories of that day. Yeah. No. It, so it, it, it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, the mood was absolutely different because you saw people walking out of that first class and it was, you could immediately tell that something was wrong and nobody was saying anything and just people were just moving out. And so I walked into math class and the instructor had it up on the, uh, had it up on the screen. Uh, and you just see one of the towers burning and you, you're not sure what's happened. And then we saw the second tower get hit. Um, and, and everybody at the time in the class realized that the, that the news broadcasters on the television weren't seeing what was on the screen you know, what was on the video screen, you know, at the time I was, you know, as 19 years old, I didn't know how news studios were set up or anything like that. Um, and, and so it's, uh, it, it was, I, I remember a feeling of helplessness. Um, and I cannot imagine what it was like for the people who were actually there in New York and in the Pentagon or on flight 93. And, uh, we watched that for about probably 15, 20 minutes. The instructor turned the TV off and we just, I, we talked about it, but I don't have any recollection of what was said uh, in the class. The next kind of recollection I have of somebody saying something powerful was um, we continued our daily duties. We, 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 we ran down to our intramural sports time after class, and uh, one of the instructors said, you know, this event has now changed everything that we were all planning to do in the military. Uh, and I will never forget that statement for as long as I live because it truly had that impact. What did that mean for you specifically? Why had you originally joined the army through West Point? What would have been your intentions and your plans? So the, you know, to put it in a, in a context, um, you know, 
I I have very little time in the peacetime army. Right, I was a I was a West Point cadet, pretty far removed. Um, but the context that you would hear from instructors or from senior cadets, um, beca- because the class of two thousand one did graduate, um, and so they were looking at, hey, which which military units are going to get the next rotation in Bosnia Kosovo? Right. Um, which which you know who wants to go to Korea or right. to Germany? Um, the big you know the big you know far forward. Um, you know, brigades and divisions that we had at that time um, that were, that were out there, that were, that were out there training and the Korean uh, peninsula was seen as uh, you know, and, and again, this was the, in the context of the time at West point, a little microcosm was seen as kind of that operational arm of the army. Like I'm going to go to Korea. I'm going to get to practice all this doctrine that everybody's teaching me about every day. And so there was a sudden shift um, in that and in a, in a sense of, you know, I first talked about a sense of helplessness, and then there was a general sense among the cadets of confusion, um, and then a start, and then a, and then a awareness that yes, war is coming, and it doesn't matter, you know. By the time I graduated in two thousand five, it didn't matter where you went; you were going to deploy sure. uh, to combat, and it was just a matter of which which country you were going to go to. So that that grew over the over the the next uh, three, you know, three to four years um, where initially, again, you think this is going to be a relatively quick action. We, the invasion of Iraq, um, you know, the, the, the battles at, at Anaconda and things like that. Uh, And then you realize that the war is not going away. So you, uh, you, you pick and choose your, your, your future base and your future bune is based on how quickly you're going to get into the combat theater. And by the time I graduated, that was absolutely a part of my decision calculus. Which unit, which unit can I go to, where I graduate my basic course and hopefully Ranger School, which I did, and go directly overseas? And that is absolutely what happened. Um, so, 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 for you, what I what I find interesting is that though, since you were already on that trajectory of a military career already when nine eleven happened. You know, I, I'm thinking of that. It was it was a common theme in a lot of news coverage in the early aughts, when especially after Iraq kicked off. That hey, here here are all these National Guard guys. They just joined the National Guard for college benefits. Now they're being asked to go to Iraq, and there was this implicit kind of uh, implication that that yeah, this is really unfair. They really got a raw deal because they didn't sign up for actual war. They signed up for college benefits. You're on a much more. I mean, I think anyone would would grant that. West Point is a lot heftier commitment than, say, a three-year National Guard contract um, right off the bat. But what was your thought? Had you thought, hey, I'm going to do this for six, eight years, get a little bit of experience, then I want to go to law school or do something else? What have been your initial plans as far as the military? Or were you, did you, were you like, hey, this is, this is my career. I know I'm going to love this, <laughs> and hopefully I get in the big game at some point and something happens, but I'm here for the, for the duration. At, at the time, I did not know that um – I would spend the next 15 years in the army. I, I honestly, when, you know, when September 11th happened in 2001, and then even up until about when I graduated, I was open to, I was open to, I'm going to, I'm going to serve my commitment to serve my country. And then let's see what happens. Um, my father had been a a Vietnam vet. His, his uncles had all been world war II and Korea vets. And so there was that legacy of service, um, that, that was never pressured. Um, but I, my brother and I felt that we, uh, we just wanted to live up to that and wanted to do that. Um, 
it's interesting, right? You talked about the the commitments. There's different reasons why people join, um, and and to be truly transparent, one of the uh, allures of going to West Point was because I I didn't have to take out student loans. <laughs> um, sure, I was 17 sure. years old, and that student yeah. loans were really scary. And so I I I was surprised. Um, I was surprised that I that I that I was able to obtain a nomination. Um, so, you know, but then you, you look at the people, you look at the reasons why people stay. Um, and, and for me, it's the, it's the people the the army, the total army forces, you know, having been able to work and serve with all three components with the, with the active, the guard and the reserve is pretty, pretty incredible. And so for, for some people, it's, it's, it's a term of service like, like Eamon, who's, who's, you know, branched into a, a successful, very successful career in the law enforcement. And, and for some, it's, uh, you know, it's full-time, it's uh full-time, full life service. So, sure. Yeah. So I'm, let me ask you, I, I think I'm going to know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway, when you look back now at nine 11, and now here you are sitting here 20 years later to the day, since we are recording this on nine 11, what would you tell that 20 year old or that, that, uh, yourself 20 years ago, what would, what, how is your world going to change? Who were you then versus who are you now? Obviously career wise, a lot of things changed, but what else changed that wouldn't, that I think we can, let's take away the constants of, well, anybody's going to be a bit wiser 20 years down the road, no matter what they do. But in this specific case, where, that the events from 9-11 took you where it made you go uh, career-wise obviously was profound. But mentally, personally, what would you tell yourself back then? What were what were things that you should have geared up and prepared yourself to face? What, what would you have said? I think one of the biggest uh, hurdles even prior to joining was the Middle Eastern community. And that's something I would, I would tell myself to be – should have been a little more prepared for that because I thought I would have a little more support, but I didn't. Um, there were pockets of support here and there, but for the most part, uh, there wasn't. Uh, most of the Middle Eastern community saw it as, you know, oh, no, the, the U.S. is going to just take over the lands and blah, blah, you know, stuff like that. And, and you know, my younger self, uh, I would tell him, <laughs> you know, put, get ready to put up a fight. And, and I think when I was younger, um, again, not knowing I was 20, 21 years old, you know, when, 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 when nine 11 happened and I was still in that period where, you know, the military was sort of thinking about it and, um, eventually pulled the trigger after nine 11, but with, with everything that 20 years later, uh, reflecting back, really uh, kind of stand up more for my ideals, especially the way I am compared to the way I was when I came home from my, from war. Um, I was night and day difference. It's like, uh, like, like you said, Marcia and Chris, uh, I think you also said it is like when you, know, you, you left a piece of yourself at war and that piece of me is always there. And that, piece of me was the one that helped me survive uh throughout the years uh doing what i do now in law enforcement and and uh you know swat and all these other uh missions that i've taken on um biggest thing i would say to myself is just resiliency just mm. keep pushing forward and keep doing what you want to you know what needs to be done regardless of what others might think because 
um, us as warriors, our ideals are vastly different than sure. your average civilian. Sure. Uh, your average civilian tends to do the nine to five and want to make all this cash. And that's all they're thinking about. They're chasing this, they're chasing that, where us as warriors, our pursuits are a lot different. What made you different than others in the Middle Eastern community? Why were you the, uh, you know, it seems like you're saying you were the, the aberration. Why was that? I think I've I've always kind of it's one of those things where you know deep inside that there's something missing in your life, right? And and it was like I felt that it was going military service, going to war, going overseas, and really um, tapping into that side of me. Um, and and I always say that when I came back from war, it was like you know the 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 lion or the wolf or whatever you want to call it inside me woke up and realized. These this is these are critical missions that need to get done, and these you know to the, my brothers to my left and to my right are all I care about, and and that that's kind of where where my mindset became after I came home. Was and I'm I'm speculating here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but is it also because you had been chased from two other continents by civil war, so yeah, there was I mean, a, there I mean, was a real personal sense of holy crap, this this. Yeah. I know what this is about. Yeah, I mean, subconsciously, I would say even consciously, I knew the reasons of me going was far deeper than just uh, going after terrorism and all that. It was it was a lot deeper than that. It was not only yeah, go after terrorism, go after bad you know bad guys, or go after whatever missions the uh, the U.S. had for the army. Mine went even further, and mine was I'm here to root out the good ones from the bad ones. Because I know there's a lot of good ones, um, and uh, you know, I I know I know how it feels like to be oppressed and to not be able to rise up and to constantly have that, you know, uh, look over your shoulder type feeling, uh, you know, your entire life. Um, I mean, I when I came to the US, I was like nine years old, so it wasn't really like it didn't hit me as hard, but you know, I've seen enough. I mean, I, I remember, uh, when I was in Lebanon and, and our village seeing artillery shells hit the side of the mountains, uh, near my village, uh, in Africa, I remember seeing, uh, uh, Liberian soldiers get blown up, um, as they're coming off deuce and halves, you know? So, so these are all vivid images in my early, early childhood that, I, that I had that really kind of guided me towards after nine 11 was like, you know what, it's basically fuck this. I'm going. So uh, first, uh, just because I can't let this go, so can you just give me a little timeline? Give us a little timeline of of your family's history. Then that you were, guys were in Liberia initially, and then yeah. you went to Lebanon. So I was I was born in Liberia because my father uh, had uh, uh, work down there, and uh, myself and my uh, brother were born there. And uh, when the civil war broke out. Um, because Charles Taylor, Charles decided, Taylor, right? Yeah, yeah. Charles Taylor. Decided, Is that why you moved to Massachusetts? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, yeah, there's the connection. <laughs> but yeah, because Charles Taylor did his thing, yeah. uh, we lost I'll everything. Put that in the show notes for everybody who doesn't yeah. get that reference of who Charles Taylor is and why mm-hmm. that. Why? Yeah, that's I'm a whole. Laughed. But anyway, that's a whole story. It's a fasc- that's a fascinating story. That's a whole <laughs> yeah. hour in and of itself. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. But uh, but yeah. So so when Charles Taylor did his thing, I had to. Uh, I mean, my family, we just left everything. Um, and went to Lebanon. And here's here's what's what's interesting. My memories of the leaving Liberia, I don't have any. 
I don't know what it was like for me. Um, all I remember were those soldiers that got blown up. Um, same thing with Lebanon. I don't remember driving through the fighting areas. Um, I just remember the artillery shells hitting the side and various militant militias going through our village, uh, you know, wreaking havoc. And uh, and that's all that's all I really remember. I don't even remember when we. I, I remember landing in the U.S. I don't even remember any of the. <laughs> events before that yeah. oh yeah no i i don't have any of that so so wow. i think again the mind's a is, a is an amazing thing where we just really block you know our minds block shit out really bad shit that you know we can feel it we know it's there but our mind just won't tap into it but you also retain that sense memory so that when shit happened on 9-11 it, it triggered something that you yeah. intrinsically knew hey I, i've been here before yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, that's and, interesting. And that's something, uh, you know, kind of timeline when 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 nine eleven happened. Uh, that's when I decided, yep, I'm going to join. And I ended up going to basic at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, September of 2002, actually. And wow. uh, and while we were training there, um, it's funny uh, here, Marshall's uh, kind of. Uh, second year cadet, and you guys were were figuring out. Oh, I'm going to go to Kosovo, Bosnia, you know, Germany, uh, Korea was going to be the closest you come to, to action, so to speak, in terms of actually doing what you're trained to do. Um, for us, for me, uh, when I was in in basic, and it was like the talk of Iraq was starting to talk to you know, starting to come up and everything. They were training us for war. Yeah, they weren't training yeah. us for the next mission, whatever it might be. We knew where we were going. It was either going to be Iraq or Afghanistan, and that's all they were preparing us for. And my drill sergeants, um, all of them were Gulf War vets, which which was uh, which was pretty cool hearing their stories after sure. we were, after we were allowed to uh, talk to them, to or they were, them. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, or they were allowed to uh, tell us after being in red phase for shit nine weeks, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> guys were a great platoon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, we. We, uh, you know, hearing their stories and them talking about how um, actually uh, MSR Tampa, basically, uh, d- their descriptions of, of going down there and the burning bodies and all the tanks. And, and it's funny, you know, in 05 when I was there, it was like what they were saying was exactly it, you yeah. know, as yeah. you're driving through, as you're, as you're you know, uh, Charlie Mike and whatever mission you're doing and, and you're just, you see it, you know, you got to yeah. see it. Yeah. Marshall, I want to ask you then. Um, when 9-11 happened in 2001, what was your call? If, if you had to pinpoint yourself, if somebody had sat down and put a microphone in front of you, how did you think things were going to play out for you and for the United States? Wow. I, um, I, it, I, honestly, I didn't know at the time. Um, most of us didn't know. Me personally, I didn't know. Um, when we saw that second plane hit the towers, we knew that, okay, the the first one wasn't a mistake. Something's gone incredibly wrong. Uh, and, and, and then you hear about the plane that hit the Pentagon and then flight 93. There was, um, there was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of sadness. Um, I, I remember, uh, you know, thinking that we had lost tens of thousands instead of 3000 and, you know, all things that you can't control, right. as an 18 year old, uh it it was uh it was a it was a certain realization that somebody had had declared war on us on on the united states and um 
and then it was just a matter of who and then when and then how long um and so from there and then and then going to um you know west point's only an hour you know an hour north by train and so there was you know you start you start to realize that this has you start to think outside of yourself and realize that this event has had an, an impact on thousands of families, thousands of people, um, but also some of the people that you work with, um, some of the people that you're cadets with. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so that's, that's on, you, you realize that, that your innocence in a sense is, is gone. Yeah. Um, and it becomes one of those pivotal, pivotal moments in your life. I, I don't know that if anybody had, talk to me at 18 years old, if I would have been able to describe or, or even make a educated guess about what might've happened, um, that year, or even, or even five, five, 10, 20 years down the road. So I want to ask you one other aspect on this being that you were at West point and you're surrounded by many of the best and brightest that the army feels can mentor young cadets. And yet Kind of like Iman said, you know, maybe you had some Gulf War vets there, hmm. but that was about it. So you're looking at, you know, mostly people that had existed in a peacetime military, and obviously with certain exceptions, but um, in the Gulf War, but but generally that had been the outlook, and now they're teaching you and preparing you almost for a game that they had, many of them had never had a chance to play. Was there any sense of that? Am I overreading that? Or is was there some dynamic of like, hey, you young cadets are actually going to be the ones that are going to do the stuff that I spent 20, 25 years tr- getting ready for and never really got a chance to exercise my entire skill set at? There's, um, I don't, for me personally, I don't know that there was any of that. There's, um, okay. there was a, especially if, three years later when I, you know, three, four years later, when I graduated in 05, there was, there was a, you knew that instructors that had taught you a couple years earlier were now battalion and brigade S3s and XOs in, in, in combat. And by the time you went through your basic course, they've, they've already had one or two tours, but it really hits back, harkens back to the fundamentals. Um, the fundamentals of leadership don't change. Peacetime army, wartime army, uh, competent leaders, toxic leaders. Uh, again, Marshall McGurk's assessment, but those fundamentals don't change. And so it was uh, it was interesting to see NCOs and officers come into the tactical officer ranks, the instructor ranks, who had been on a couple of those first deployments. Um, it was it was um, interesting to have those conversations with those instructors who hadn't been to combat. Um, whether it was, uh, the Gulf war or Somalia, um, we had a couple of Somalia vets, uh, in the, in the instructor ranks, you know, and, to and to kind of realize that, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do a little bit of discovery learning together. Um, so what do, what do we think we need to, to learn? What are the fundamentals? What, are, what is, you know, at the time it was FM seven dash eight, if you were going into the infantry, um, uh, mounted operations, if you were, if you were thinking about the armor branch, you know, the, the, uh, you know, there was folks interested in scouts. There was folks interested in field artillery. So the 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 emphasis on education about the various military branches, about what they do, um, and then really becoming, uh, you know, again, not to speak for for West Point and the military academy, but really becoming a uh, um, a center of 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 oral and military history and recent history. Uh, my experience that 
they did a the school did a very good job of bringing in recent combat veterans to talk to cadets. Um, I, I'm and I mean I'm I'm talking you you. I knew, you know, I knew an upperclassman who graduated in an O2 and in 2004, you know, he's back wearing his DCUs with his platoon sergeant talking about their experiences, um, their experiences in Iraq, um, to a, to, you know, to a, a large breakout session, um, and bringing, uh, leaders back from previous conflicts, senior leaders back from previous conflicts. It's something I think they've, they've done quite well. Um, but the school was invested in that, to to, to make sure that we were as, as prepared as we could be, um, from a, from an intellectual and a physical standpoint. Um, and, uh, and then to allow the army through its, through its basic courses and its other schools to, to prepare us to go out and take our platoons. So I'm going to ask, um, a, a very fantastical question, um, that there's really no right answer for, but I, I want to get a little, uh, left side of the brainy here for a second, um, since obviously 9-11 has a lot of emotion with it. Let's talk a little bit more rationally for a moment. Um, Marshall, I'll start with you. You are President Marshall McGurk, <laughs> and uh, you you were able to pull an FDR and extend your terms throughout the next 20 years after 9-11. What, what do you do differently? How does this play out so we end up in a different place now, 20 years later, or is it really, Hey, I, I might do some things different, but pretty much we're going to end up in the same place anyway at this point, And that's okay. How do you stand? What do you change? What do you keep? That's a, that is a wonderful thought experiment. Um, and, and being that I'm still on active duty, I'll, 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 I'll only focus on a couple things that, that, that I, that I believe are fundamental, no matter, no matter what, where you are in, in, um, for me in, in military service or, um, as a, as a, as a global citizen. Um, sure. Sorry, that was an unfair question to ask. No, no, it's, it's great though, because no, it's great though, because it's, you know, it's, you truly realize how complex, um, government is. You realize, you know, and I didn't realize at the time as a Lieutenant, no, nobody does. Um, you know, at the time I'm thinking, all right, seven dash eight, I'm thinking ranger school. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to take my Bradley platoon, my mechanized infantry platoon. That's a fighting vehicle for those that don't know. And I'm going to, I'm going to take 40 of my soldiers and we are going to crush, um, an enemy element on a, on MSR Tampa. Um, you know, interesting tie in there. I was on that same slice of road there, the main highway running North into Baghdad. And so that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And, uh, and then, and then you get a little older, you, you do some schooling, you get a graduate degree and you realize that fighting a war is hard. <laughs> and you realize that, uh, fighting a war with partners and allies is hard. Um, and then you realize that fighting and training for a war f- with partners and allies for 20 years is, inc- that's, that's an incredible lift. That is an expensive lift. Um, that takes a lot of intellectual, emotional, physical, monetary power uh, to do such a thing. Um, I I can't say if I you know what I might have done differently. What I will say is that um, we would not have been able to be where we're at today without our partners and allies. Um, the f- the fact that after nine eleven. Um, you know, Australia, our one of our five eye partners, 
um, you know, recognized an act of, of partnership that we had been attacked um, and became one of our allies and one of our closest allies in Afghanistan. Uh, NATO invoked Article 5, um, an attack against one of us is attacking against all of us. Um, and, and to varying degrees, they, they've made commitments. Um, and we've been able to uh, shape and to, to grow, to integrate, um, to train together, to fight together, uh, um, even still to this day. And that's, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. And now at, at one of the, you know, it's incredible for me being at one of the combat training centers, uh, as a, as a coach and a trainer to see, um, our multinational partners, uh, whether it's from the United Kingdom or Colombia or Indonesia or Thailand, uh, who, who trust and, uh, have trust and confidence in the United States, have trust and confidence in the military, but also it, you know, and I'll, 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 I'll keep it on the left side of the brain. You know, it, in a sense, it's, it's kind of, there's a sense of love there. Um, you know, something that I would have told 18 year old Marshall is keep the, keep the love and the poetry in your soul. As some, my, my dad always told me, um, you know, my dad being a Vietnam vet and, and the things that he experienced that he never really talked about until, I went to combat <laughs> and then we had a common understanding. And so, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of love that is required. Um, maybe not on the institutional level or the, or the state policy level. I don't operate there, but certainly on the personal relationship level, uh, where, where countries have decided that young men and women are going to fight side by side in a common cause. Uh, and that's, is, uh, that's certainly an honorable thing to be a part of. That's a really great point. That is not something I would have expected uh, as an answer, and you're you're absolutely right. That is one heck of an achievement. Uh, I'm in same question to you, and feel free to be to throw more salt in there if you want. Uh, Marsh, that was, that was brilliant side stepping and tap dancing, and I know that was, that was amazing. <laughs> really, you know, um, Charlie sitting there nodding and going, "Aha, yes, yes, Pat Juan. That's exactly how we how we need to dance and side step these things and still be interesting." Uh, so, All right, now now leave it to the NCO to tear. Exactly. to get into it. This, this is why we have NCOs, Radical Candor. I love it. <laughs> so, so same, same to answer your, your question is... You're, you're president. You're not even president. You're emperor. So, because you can, you can reign for the next 20 years after 9-11. Yep. What are your sustains? What are your improves? What do you keep? What do you jettison? What moves do you do differently? What initiatives do you follow through and maintain? So... And you can be as comprehensive or as simple as you want. You can yeah, pick- yeah. I'm, I'm trying because yeah. because with me, like like I said, it it goes deeper than just uh, that. Uh, you know, from from my experiences and and one thing, you know, the, the, the twenty year long war to me. Um, at some point, I think no matter what, a withdrawal was going to happen. Uh, at some point, uh, when certain missions have been accomplished, um, you know. So to me, it it was. Uh, our our first mission right after 9/11 was go after Al Qaeda and destroy them. And wherever they are in the world, we're going to go after them and destroy them. And uh, and we have effectively uh, done that for some time uh, over the course of the 20 years where we kept them on the run. Um, that aspect of the fight is one that 
I would continue no matter what. Because they have no fear of coming into the U.S. to rain the havoc that they can rain. And I'm always of the mind, well, I'm going to take the fight to the enemy. And that's something that we all learned at BASIC and at boot camp and uh, OCS and, and all the schools is you take the fight to the enemy. They don't come here to, to basically mess with us. And uh, and that's one of the big my biggest things is um, especially uh, like I don't ISIS would would not have happened if I was <laughs> the man in charge, that 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 was to me uh, was a complete cluster of how that ha- happened, and for me to see uh, ISIS rolling through the same exact provinces that my guys fought for, died for, bled for, got injuries for, um, and and I'm going to be critical of our government because that's just the way I am. They messed up big time. They allowed that to happen because. They were too busy worrying about public perception of why are we going to go back to Iraq. To me, it's not about that. It's about, like Marshall said, it's about our partners, our allies, our friends that we've made over the years of fighting such a long war. And in a warrior ethos, in the army ethos, you leave no man behind. And that has been ingrained in us. I mean, for the past 20 years, even even a lot of us combat vets that are law enforcement, we still have that. We leave no man behind. Everyone everyone goes home by the end of the day, whether you know dead or alive. Um, to me, abandoning our allies like that went against everything that we stood for uh, in the army. Um, and with that withdrawal in Kabul last week uh, or the week before, uh, the way it went. Uh, I've never seen so many veterans be so heated. Yeah. They were heated about ISIS, but even more so with Kabul because that was the reason we all joined. That was the reason why we all went there to fight. Um, and to, again, abandon our allies. I had friends uh, who are still active um, were sending texts of uh, personal friends of theirs, Afghanis that they made close ties with, uh, because that's the way we are as a country. The, that's part of, you know, the whole, uh, essentially to me, big army kind of took the whole special forces doctrine in terms of, of, of UW and, and turned it into this uh, big thing where all of our allies, no matter who you were, uh, we would take care of you and and we will work with you and we'll do what we can with you. I mean, uh we just don't. Uh, to me, abandoning our allies as as leaders as in government. To me, we just took that twenty years of work of building those allies, threw it all away, because our allies now, to me, our allies can no longer trust us. You know, how many times are we going to do that to the Kurds? How many times are we going to do that to various factions in Afghanistan? How many how many times are we going to do that now? Uh, I'll tell you right now, uh, like kind of Middle Eastern news media. Uh, that's the talk. Yeah, big, yeah. big, big. U.S. is no longer reliable because of that type of withdrawal. You know, and, and and especially to say that we're withdrawing to support so that we can focus on supporting our allies. But apparently, that doesn't mean our allies that are actually in the countries we've been fighting <laughs> exactly this whole time. So then, it, it, what tier of ally are they, and and why are we viewing them differently and and less than others? Sorry, I'm I'm going to throw that. Yeah, out. yeah, no, that's that's one hundred percent, and and that's the thing where where I one thing I'm extremely proud of of the veteran community is when all these various uh, operations that the that veterans created through their own money or they got funding or whatever, 
and went in country and got some of those allies out of there. And, you know, that, that makes me very, again, that makes me very proud of the veteran community where we still uphold those ideals of leave no man behind, take care of your troops, take care, take care of your allies. And, and as if I was emperor of, of that past 20 years, that would be my main thing is never abandoning your allies. And to me, uh, public perception, whatever. They don't know what it's like to fight a war uh, strategically, uh, methodically, uh, because this is an enemy that is not North Korea or Iran or, or Germany or whatever. You know, it's not a uniformed um, um, uh, arm. State. Yeah, nation yeah. state. Yeah. These are individual lone wolves that band together to form these terror networks. So that's that's kind of I know I went on a little bit of a tangent, but that's no, yeah. yeah. The question kind of begs for you to go on a tangent. So no, that's totally fine. I think it is interesting to sit here and listen to both of your explanations, though, and both of you guys can't stray too far away from coming back to our allies and what alliances mean and what it means to have friends in combat, um, and and those shared interests that you have. And I think that it is something that is not necessarily something that you pick up if you're just watching the news about this. That's not something that if you haven't been there, you can necessarily appreciate. And so I think that's a worthwhile um, thing to footstop and to kind of uh, make sure that people are aware of how important that is. And it also, it does justify why so many vets are fired up now because our word does mean something. And when you've been face to face with someone uh, that does imply a level of trust and honor that you want to see backed up and not necessarily discarded. So let me feed that. And we don't have to get into, I mean, I'm in and I can certainly uh, cast aspersions and throw stones. So don't worry about that part, Marshall, but let me, let me ask you um, it, it, to answer it any way that you see fit. Is the GWAT essentially over now? Is this are we are we more than just celebrating a twenty year anniversary of nine eleven? Are we kind of is this kind of the memorial, the RIP, the rest in peace of what we started twenty years ago? I my, my assessment no. Um, however, you know it was I was you know I was I was a, you know a cadet at West Point on nine eleven. I, I graduated in two thousand five. I was I was in Iraq in two thousand six. And then again in 2008 and 9, I was at Fort Bragg when President Obama uh, declared the first, you know, the first portion of the Iraqi operation, Iraqi freedom, over um, at, at Fort Bragg. And then uh, was in Afghanistan um, when some operational names changed uh, in 2012 and 2013. And so, uh, for me being inside of the military, I've been able to see, um, you know, what was termed. Uh, the global war on terror. Um, uh, I've seen it evolve and change and, and know that, okay, there's specific operational phases. Um, and, and in a sense, I, I haven't really, I haven't really thought about that term uh, in a long time, probably since about 2010 or 2011 or so. Um, it, it's, it, it's something that uh, I know it was a term that, that people rallied around Um for me, the term wasn't necessarily important. It was, um, especially in those, in those early years, it was the, it was the, it was the term of service and what we were, what we were about to go do and the operations that we were going to, we were set to deploy, uh, forward and do, um, 
So even if the nomenclature changes, mm. does the mission? Do you think the mission is now significantly changed, been eliminated, just been degraded? Or, or so you know, whatever. How I agree with you. However, the the Pentagon or DoD or the White House wants to name hmm. uh, the, the the conflict or whatever semantic you know uh, mazes of circular logic we want to go down as far as what we're calling any sort of combat or contingency operations now is the mission still there or is the mission now kind of dissipated and it no longer have the same emphasis well in, and this is where I might get a little bit of a I, I might get my uh, I might get a little bit nerdy but if you if you look at the if you look at the at the at the national security strategy, the national defense strategy released in 2017, 2018, uh, the, the regular warfare annex to, to, to the national defense strategy, which is something new. Um, and it does talk about, okay, the army may be making a shift towards large scale combat operations. That's been in the army times. Uh, the chief of staff has, has gone on to podcasts to talk about that, but they've also talked about the, the continued threat of terrorism. Um, the continued threat of of that political violence um, against a against a government, be it um, you know fomented by or or backed by a nation state or backed by a by a series of connected networks and lone wolf groups. So the the mission the mission I, I believe in ISS hasn't ended just based off of the doctrine that we follow and, and what we train for. Um, if anything, I, I, I assess that the forces that are trained for it, and I, I, I truly believe we're, we're, we're incredibly well trained for it now after 20 years. Um, and, uh, and I know that, um, that whole of government, uh, that, that whole of government approach with it, um, sounds kind of cliche, but it actually, uh, when you read the literature, it actually does work. Um, whether it's, um, within a civilian population with a, with, with a sound government and a police force, um, uh, fusing information that's coming together, um, having a, a sound you know, military policy. It, uh, it's pretty amazing to see across the globe, um, in some, in some regions of the world, in, including, um, you know, including, you know, some partners that we have that, that are, that are, sh- that may be struggling, um, to get on a sound economic footing or a sound political footing, what they're able to do when they just have a little bit of assistance um, and the, how they're able to solve their own problems, address those grievances so it doesn't become or devolve into a, into a, um, into a place that, that allows for terrorist actions or terrorist sentiments to be fomented and trained. So I don't believe the mission has gone away. And I, you know, and that, again, that's just based off the army literature that says, yes, we're, where we may be making a shift in how we train, but we will continue to be prepared for this because we know it's a threat. So I'm going to, I mean, I want to ask you the same question, but I'm going to throw a little more context in as well. Um, A couple of data points. We have credible reports in the overt media that China has now reached out to the Taliban. We have Pakistani, Um, not just ISI, but actual Pakistani army and air force elements operating in Panjshir against the resistance fighters. We have, uh, again, credible uh, OSINT uh, open source media reporting that Iran has put anti-air weapons at various airfields in Afghanistan to ensure that we can't return or take those airfields easily. Um, 
nation state, and my point being that nation state actors are operating openly with very little fear of repercussion and on behalf of the bad guys in Afghanistan right now. So my question, and you can answer is GWAT essentially over, but I'll, I'll partner that with this question. How soon, how long before we're back in Afghanistan? So first I'll go with GWAT and then we'll, we'll talk. Yeah. Your, your second question I'll, I'll okay. get into. So, so with GWAT now, now with me as a, as a veteran and, and in law enforcement, uh, for CONUS purposes, um, we're still training GWAT. We're still because the threat's real. It's right. out here. Um, uh, our SWAT teams uh, routinely practice Mac MacTac, which mass mass uh, attack type Mumbai hotel type attacks, um, IEDs, uh, recognition of of terrorism cells, you know stuff like that. We still train that, and it really showed at the Boston Marathon bombing how important it was for us to be able to respond the way we responded because we already had processes in place to, uh, because we train it all the time, processes in place and how we uh, addressed the Boston Marathon bombing and leading up to uh, the the capture of, uh, I'll call them Boathouse and uh, the killing of Speed Bump because I don't want to give their names up. Yeah, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so, I think the reason uh, why we were so effective in getting them within a few days compared to 9-11 was because uh, prior to 9-11, the, uh, the U.S. felt invincible, right? This would never happen here. This would never happen here. This would never happen here. Now, if you take me back 20 years being uh, if I was the big man in charge and someone comes up to me and says, hey, a couple of people are going to fly planes into the towers, I'd say, yeah, that's real. Because in the Middle East, that type of, that type of crap would happen. You know, like there, you would think extreme things, you know, to do because that's just the way in, in the Middle East uh, you, you use what is available for resources to do whatever attacks you want to do and, and you go from there. But um, with uh with the Boston Marathon bombing with all the upscale uh, intelligence units and um all the uh learning points and all the veterans that have come back from GWAT and joined the police force fire department uh emergency medical services yeah. um the veterans were an integral part of the law enforcement arm of going after the two brothers um because we were relentless yeah, we wouldn't go to sleep until we got. Them. We were operational twenty four hours nonstop. You would take catnaps here and there, but us as veterans knew that's what it takes to hunt these terrorists down. Yeah. Um. So for me, for 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 Conus, for what I do, uh, GWAT's not going away because we are still out there looking and sniffing out lone wolves because they are out there, and we get intel reports all the time of you know uh, this police department thwarted this attack this police department yeah. thwarted this attack this police department did a drug raid and found explosive devices all over the house you know and 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 uh, anarchy literature or whatever so yeah. we so to us the threat is extremely real mm. very real so to your second question the way Iran and some of our uh, these other countries are now reacting, the rest of the world watches what the U.S. does. I don't know if <laughs> the U.S. they realize that as much as they should. Uh, 
when the elections happen in the U.S., the whole world's watching and waiting. Because depending on who goes in office is how our nation states will react, and they will do what they do. When the withdrawal happened, that gave basically the green light to all these nation states to say that we are not going to have repercussions. We can do what we want. The Taliban was emboldened. Uh, I think they were emboldened even before then because they started to realize as they were penetrating each part of the country, they, they, were, they weren't getting the resistance that they usually get from the U.S. So they became a lot more confident as they were pushing through uh, to get into Kabul. Um, Pakistan and, and these other ones, which kind of cracks me up. I'm not surprised. that I was never surprised when Pakistan actually is, is, is helping the Taliban fight sure. in the valley, and because uh, we all know, in reality, Pakistan is n- was never really this tight ally like the perception in the U.S. Uh, the way it was uh, to us veterans and, and guys that that have been over there, we knew it was a dicey relationship all the time. Um, in Iraq, it was the same way with Iran. It was a very dicey relationship because they bordered us, and we still had to have some sort of communication with them. Uh, just so they can keep their side of the border, you know, stay on your side of the border while we operate here. Um, but I think they had these nation states had the fear because they knew our uh, leaders or elected officials were more than willing to have uh, to allow the military to respond to whatever threats that they uh, they uh, put uh, against the U.S. Now, to me, it looks like they've been emboldened by what's been going on. And this is what this is kind of ramifications. So are we going to go back? Oh, I bet we are. Yeah. Because Afghanistan for thousands of years has always been this epicenter and always been this turmoil and always been this. And it is a, again, it's a perfect spot, uh, spot for these nation states to set up. Um, so I, I, I see us going back just like I saw us go back uh, with ISIS. Um, and we had to go in and, and, and help defeat them uh, as quickly as possible because they were getting very powerful and they were using oil revenue to, uh, to, uh, to uh, fund all their terrorist activities. So, so it, that's the thing with, with, the, with the shift is the, is, is the U.S. kind of, again, to me, is, is these, the GWAT and, the, and, the, and these terror networks will never stop. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a matter on us to keep them on the run, to keep the funding, to keep disrupting whatever network they got going on, because that's the only way. It's tiring, it's expensive, but to me, to save lives and to do, like certain police leaders say, to do good police work requires money. And it's funny you say, I mean, I, I just on my, uh, on the solo episode I did a couple of days ago, that was the parallel that came to me when I keep hearing people say, well, we've been there for 20 years and it's like, okay, well, we've had uniformed police officers in this country for 150 years. Isn't that enough policing? Why don't we just give up to give that up? Well, because the problem is intrinsic. It's going to keep coming back up. There's it. And, and unless you're doing your due diligence every day, day in, day out, you have to stay till the job is done. And it, and understanding it may not be done. That's why we're still in Korea. That's why we're still in Germany. You know, that there's there's still that that tale of the issue goes on for a long time. Um, Marshall, I'm going to ask you a more academic question. Hmm. What is worth war? 
I think I oh, and wow. I say that, let, let me let me mm-hmm. let me say why I'm asking that. I, I think for a lot of civilians, I'm trying to put myself in the headspace of friends, family members, um, acquaintances, and to them, I, I, again, I'm I'm speculating, but I believe that a lot of them, you know, many of them congratulated me with the Afghanistan withdrawal. They said, "Oh boy, isn't that great? We're finally out of Afghanistan." And I was like, "Wow." You not you you really <laughs> yeah, you read the room it. you couldn't read the room worse right now yeah. yeah and um but but I think it's that implicit bias that we have in this country and that I think has been pumped through entertainment and news for a long time that peace is good war is bad and and there's very obvious reasons why that would make sense to people the problem is is life is a lot more complicated than that and I think sometimes it's important to message and keep reiterating why wars may be necessary Hmm. and not that they're desirable but desirable does not mean necessary sometimes you just these are things that have to happen and i think in some ways 9-11 is a remembrance of why some wars need to happen and and maybe even need to be maintained so regardless of how we all feel about 9-11 what is your take on why what are good reasons for war and and it was something that civilians can kind of wrap their heads around and go oh yeah that's right this is this is worth fighting for wow that is your your thought experience your thought experiments are probably going to keep me up for the rest of the weekend <laughs> this is great <laughs> this you're, you're you're hitting you're hitting at something that that i hadn't a way of framing a question that you know now being a, a an officer in the army you start to get into some of the intellectual you know intellectual podcast the intellectual uh, readings, the, the, the talks about strategy and national interest and how does, what is the civil military divide? What is the civil military link? Um, that, what is worth war? That is, I, I might, I might post that up on Twitter to see, you know, to see what answers I get. Easier question for you than to ask on a scale of 10 to 10,000, how badly did Joe Biden fuck up? I thought easier question for you to answer. So I just want to put that out there. So, so, so what is worth war? It's, it's um i'll go back to our foundational documents it's it's our national interest what our what our civilian leaders you know and i say this as a as a soldier what what my civilian leaders say is is worth it um we we go at the at the pleasure of of our uh, of our national command authority um whether that's through a authorization to use of military force um which has happened in various administrations um whether we go in in a in a capacity for humanitarian reasons, that's not war. Um, however, that is the use of the military um, as a as an arm of national power, as an element of national power for the United States. Um, and then, what what did we agree to with our partners and allies? Um, from an academic sense, um, it, it is you know, and and there's there's quantitative and qualitative measures on all of those things. There's thresholds on all of those things. Um, if we look back at the history in World War One, uh, President Wilson was reticent to involve himself up until there was a threshold, which um, then he asked for congressional authorization. Uh, similar with World War Two, if you ask somebody from, uh, you know, Poland when World War Two started, they would say 1939. You know, it would not be December seventh, 1941. That was. Um, that was when it started for us. That was when we became involved when uh, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, um, and so 
it for me it, you know what it what is what is worth for well it's you know i'm a i'm a soldier i will i will go where i'm told to go and i will fight where i'm told to fight i will help those i am told to help um and and so it's it comes down for me for for national interest um and and for what what we've agreed to with our partners and allies because there is that that system of checks and balances that does work whether it's a congressional declaration granted that hasn't happened I, I, I believe in the last 70 or so years, I think since Korea was the last or World War II was the last congressional declaration. Um, but that that's still an option. But still, Congress has had a say in the authorizations of use of military force um, and the authorizations of interventions. Um, the president has special authority to deploy a force, um, you know, for a certain period of time and to tell Congress afterwards. And so um, what, what it's worth is what what is worth it is is what our what our what our country is founded upon those ideals that this country is founded upon life liberty pursuit of happiness the constitution the declaration of independence all of those all of our foundational documents but who we stand as a nation um as one of the you know as the you know is still in my assessment a great power in the world um the great power in the world um you know and i and i say that um and i and i say that seeing that um you know, my, my family, it's interesting. I have soldiers, they can trace their lineage back to, you know, prior to 1776, you know, my lineage in this, in, in the United States happens at about 19, 1910 or so, um, through three different countries, through Ireland, through Syria. Um, and most recently with, with my mother from Barbados. Um, and so it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's pretty powerful. Uh, it re- I should say it resonates with me that yes, this country is the greatest country in the world. Um, because people do want to come here. Uh, they, they want to live our, our, our way of life. They see us as a, as a model. Um, other militaries want to come train with the United States military, not just because of the resources, um, and, and our, in our in our way of war, but because of the people, um, and the and the soldiers to their left and their right. Um, so what it, what is worth war? We know our national interests. We know what agreeing what agreements we have with our partners and allies. And then those decision makers um, make those decisions um, about about where we go, about where we invest um, resources from all the elements of national power, possibly to prevent war, possibly to assist another nation in its own conflict, um, to defend our own borders, um, to defend our own national interests. Uh, and then when the time comes for it to, uh, to actually commit war, um, for a, for a specific goal. And then once that goal is achieved, um, those same, uh, decision makers have to make a decision about when to remove that element of national power, when to remove that military element, um, or to, or to, or to lessen it to a certain extent. Again, not decisions that are made at my level, um, yep. but uh, that's my that's my academic understanding of it. I'm an. Is what were the wars that ensued in the wake of nine eleven just? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's there's no question about it. Uh, uh, for the reasons of why we all rose our right hand because we knew that there was a true threat out there. This, that was the first time where uh, citizens of, of America realized 
oh shit, there is a threat out there. We felt invincible. I think kind of like uh, back in, in Pearl Harbor when, when the blips started showing up on the radar and you couldn't believe, is yeah. that really happening? Yeah. Because we're this invincible force. Well, no. Um, I think I think at that point, uh, people realized that, yes, we need we need to take the fight to them and we need to pursue them as much as we can. Um, the only thing was like, like Marshall keeps bringing up, allies, our allies, our allies, our allies. Yeah. That's one of the biggest reasons why we were able to sustain these wars and keep going in these wars and keep fighting is because of our allies. Uh, I mean, let, let's break it down to the lowest common denominator, me as a street cop, right? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, occupying force or whatever, but me as a street cop, if I don't have the pulse of a neighborhood or the pulse of of whatever's going on, I'm not going to know what's going on in this neighborhood, you know? Uh, it's the same thing in, in the global level of the of the army where our allies are the ones that give us the type of information we need to assist them. Yep. Yeah. And we and and I always say this, you know, even back in 05, you know, with our allies, you know, we're all in this together. We're all do we're, we all have the same mission, we all have the same uh reasons of why we are where we are. Um so so long answer to your question no. is is yes, you know, that, those point. wars were just. Yeah, and and you know, it's it's I've said it before on this show and I'll say it again. In the history of Afghanistan, we are the only nation external force that has come in and occupied significant amounts of terrain in Afghanistan that the Afghan people never rose up in revolution against. Mm-hmm. Yep. That we only did this with their blessing. When we talk about our allies, yes, we mean the Portuguese and the Slovaks and the Spanish and the Brits and all them, but at the core level, we mean the indigenous people on the ground in whatever country we're operating. And that's been true, in, at least in my experience, every country I've ever been in as a member of the military. And, and certainly, I think you guys would agree, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, we've had to operate with the blessing of the people on the ground. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to do half the things I did in Iraq without meeting with the some of the village elders and talking about their problems. What issues do they have? What sort of forces are they going up against? Uh, I mean, an example was something as simple as there were uh, up on uh, Amasar uh, Cheyenne, there was uh, uh, um, insurgencies that will hit Kurdish convoys that carried money to the banks into Baghdad. And I had to meet with various members of, of the, uh, the tribal leaders and to talk because you know, again, I speak Arabic and I'm, I'm able to talk to them and, and see what, you know, what's, what's the story and them describing to the T of exactly how that whole operation works and who and what and where and which village is part of it. I wouldn't have been able to do that as a U.S. soldier with drones and whatever else, you know, that took that human intel yeah. is what drove the operation the way it went. And same thing with information about uh, the leader of Al-Qaeda of Iraq making his way to our battle space uh, just before I left when I sent that up to a battalion and brigade uh, just before I left. And then later on, finding out a couple months later, he was killed in that region that the Iraqis told me he was coming because we knew Al-Qaeda was marching south towards Baghdad um, back in 05. And, and again, though, this information was given by the indigenous population, by, by our allies, the yeah. very same yeah. allies that essentially the U.S. abandoned. Yeah. 
you know that that's i think that's what hurts all the veterans a hundred percent a hundred percent so let let me shift it back to our emotions on this day marshall you are i'm gonna have you imagine that you're at a 9-11 ceremony um right now and they are having a couple people come out give a couple prepared speeches and then they have a moment of silence in that moment of silence what does 9-11 now mean to you? What are your emotions? What what are your thoughts? Where does your mind wander to? My thoughts are with, uh, my thoughts are with the, the people in the, in the, in the world trade center. My thoughts are with the, the people in the Pentagon and with, uh, and on flight 93 and with their families. I cannot imagine and I'm saying this as a as a combat vet. I cannot imagine the scope and the scale of of the of that trauma. Um, that you would you would you just don't wish that on other people. Um, there's fundamental change that happens when when traumatic events like like combat happen, and that was an act of combat uh, on innocence. Um, who are, you know, you, me, I'm in, we're, we're trained over time to, to process and reflect and, and have tools provided to us and by various organizations to help us deal with that trauma and, uh, and, and, and innocent people don't have that and innocent defenseless people do not have that. They, which is, which makes, which makes them acts of valor even all that more incredible um, to see entire fire ladders go into the building, entire police departments go into the building. Uh, people who worked in those buildings go up and down buildings to try to get their coworkers out to see um, passengers on a plane, realizing that, that, that this they're on one of those planes, that this is it and they have to do something. Um, otherwise more people are going to die. Um, that my thoughts are with that that amount of courage, that amount of bravery shown by ordinary citizens who did something extraordinary in a very traumatic uh, and very irrational, yeah. irrational time. My sense, you know, my feelings as well are also that with, you know, that, you know, the mindset of fear is all consuming. Um, it was something that I wrote down today and it, you know, it results in irrational behavior, terrorist activity. And, you know, again, Marshall McGurk's assessment, academic assessment, mindset of fear, all consuming logic, rational thought, pragmatic, you know, pragmatic change may be able to affect some, but the, for the true believer, it's almost impossible to, to, uh, to change that person's mind. And those were true believers, the, the, uh, the hijackers that day. The people that sent them were, were true believers in their cause. Um, and an absolutely irrational um, act of violence uh, that that's had exponential effect over the last 20 years. Um, my thoughts are, yeah, and yes, my thoughts are on that a little bit and what might have been um, had that not occurred. But uh, I can't, I can't take that away. I can't take 
the pain away from those 3,000 families from multiple countries, not just the United States, but 3,000 families from literally all over the world. Um, because it was a, you know, for those that may not be aware that that was one of the, the World Trade Center was one of the economic centers of New York City. Um, if not the main, you know, most visible one, um, where you had people from all different countries working in that building. You had people from all different countries on those planes. Um, and so my thoughts are, you know, my thoughts are with them and the amount of courage, bravery, um, that it took to absorb that amount of sadness. Yeah. Because that, that is a loss that, that irrational act of violence severed thousands of connections, personal, professional, some may even say institutional, um, uh, if you look at some of the reactions to 9-11 against, against other states, against other people, against people who, um, you know, it, it, I won't, I won't delve into the details, but there was varying reactions on, you know, against others about, about, um, um, about what happened that day. And so my, th- my thoughts are with them, uh, you know, you know, at a at a at a ceremony to to remember uh, September 11, two thousand one. That's where my thoughts are at. I mean, what about you in that moment? What do you think of? I think of pretty much uh, uh, Marshall uh, hit the those other points, but uh, but on top of those, for me, it was the day where the fighting over there came here. Um, you know, to, to me, when, when that moment of silence happens and, uh, to all my, uh, distant family members and, and, uh, friends and others that have to live with it over there every single day, um, you know, the uncertainty, uh, of when is the next hit coming or, you know, you can't rely on your government to even protect you because, they're weak or they're corrupt or whatever. And, and part of that process of the moment of silence is kind of, again, we are the greatest country in the world world. And you have individuals like, like the veteran community, law enforcement, firefighters, whatever, that are willing to sacrifice themselves because of the idea of America, of what it stands for. And I get, all the time, just just like what Marshall said, when I see it on the ground um, after a Boston Marathon bombing, where average citizens were picking people up, mm. rushing them to the near, nearest hospital, nearest doctor, um, and I, I, again, I, I truly believe it was because after nine eleven, so much has changed in the country, and uh, I think we saved so many lives that day. Is one, I mean, yeah, you were in Boston, which is the epicenter of some of the greatest hospitals in the world, uh, but also people sprung to action mm-hmm. without yeah. hesitation. Without, I didn't see one like maybe there were some that were frozen with fear and all that, but for the most part. I mean, even National Guard soldiers, you know, most of them were combat vets throwing stuff around, uh, using the combat life-saving, you know, uh, courses and whatever they've they've learned overseas, applying it here. And and to me, that's what it looks like when you've been at war for that long and and knowing that the threats are there 
and being able to respond effectively to those threats. I mean, these are all the thoughts I get in that moment of silence is just that realization that people over here have realized the threat that it's out there. It's funny. I was, I, um, I don't know if you guys saw, but yesterday I realized, obviously, we would be recording this on 9-11, but I was like, God, I really want to put something out on 9-11 itself. So I did a solo episode yesterday that's that's out right now, and just talking about my 9-11 um, experiences um, because I was at the towers that day. But the, the big takeaway that I want to relate from that here was when I got back to my uh, apartment and I looked at the bookshelves and all the VHS cassettes I had. And I remember looking at Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles, and some of these other movies. And this was my life. I loved those things. The posters I had on the wall. And all of them meant nothing. For the first time in my life, there was no color in any of them anymore. And I was like, holy shit, now I know what the rest of the world feels like. Now I know what Beirut feels like in 1982. You know, I know what all these places that you read about in the New York Times, you know, hey, there was a bombing here or some bad thing happened there or some humanitarian issue there. I was like, suddenly uh, I became acutely aware of how privileged, and obviously that word has a lot of connotations nowadays, but, but I mean that in its most natural sense, what a privilege it had been to live in the United States and to be um, separate from all that my whole life. And that suddenly reality had hit. And now it was, there was that obligation to man up and to go, okay, well, are you going to let that wolf just devour this country or are you going to preserve this for generations to come? And I think um, if I can, if this is a fair extrapolation, that that's, I think, what all three of us are talking about is that sense of, okay, jock up, man, because this now, now it just got real. And now this is a bit of a fight for, our way of life. And this is what we, that was the instant maturity that happened after nine 11, I think in so many ways. Um, again, not to put words in any of your mouths. Um, I'll just say that on my behalf, but, uh, that was my takeaway based off what you guys were saying. I'll ask you one final question on this. Uh, and it's, going to be a little unfair because Marshall, I'll start with you. So I give you time to think of, <laughs> of what you want to say um, in one word. If, if there was one word that you wanted people to know when they think of nine 11, um, just one word to sum up what you think people's takeaways should be, what should be in people's minds, almost especially people that are not in law enforcement, not in the fire services, not in the military? Um, what what would that be? Even if it helps to think of generations from now, what is the takeaway? What is the one word that should that you would want conveyed about nine eleven? Courage. Uh, it uh, it was the first word that popped into my mind. Uh, you know, and if somebody, you know, if somebody asked me, well, what do you mean about that? Well, it was the courage and the resilience, as I said, innocent, ordinary people with, without specialized training, um, aside from, you know, fire department and police departments. I mean, even then we, let's, let's put it back in context. 20 years ago, how often did we train for something that was that massive? Um, you know, the 93 world trade center bombing was, you know, okay. That was a pretty, pretty, uh, 
large event, you know, in, in, in 1993, okay. Seven, seven, eight years later, um, in, nobody was, we can't look back and say that anybody was prepared for that level of trauma for that, for that scale of destruction. Um, but people did courageous things without question, without thought, without, um, and with the knowledge that, uh, they may lose their life doing it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's power. That's powerful. That's, that is powerful. That resonates about the spirit of the nation. Um, so that's, that's my, that's my word for that. To, to go from the 1990s and, and, you know, kind of all the implications of watching friends and sex in the city and kind of these it kind of, which I love, I love all that stuff. But to me, it is, it is such a relic of an age that's gone by a carefree age mm-hmm. that, that we no longer have. And, um, and to suddenly be faced with your own mortality mm. in a very real and sudden way, I think is a jarring cognitive dissonance that, that I think did shock a lot of people. Um, I'll also say just a quick data point that I think people might find interesting to your point about, Hey, even fire EMS police weren't synced up and weren't prepared before nine 11, the way they were after nine 11, which point I'm in also has made when talking about the Boston marathon and all that a uh, little data point that people might find interesting. Uh, do either of you guys happen to know what entity actually coordinated the 9-11 site the day of 9-11 and then subsequently thereafter? Do you guys know who actually ran that as the emergency management system and who was actually in control? No, I, I don't. That's um... it was it was actually two Forest Service guys, and that was because they were the because they were pioneering. Um, if uh, if any anyone out there knows uh, fire science, all fire. Um, fire science improvements come from the West Coast to the East Coast because that's uh, just more technologically advanced, and and West Coast firefighters tend to pioneer a lot more things. Well, one of the mm. one of the concepts they were pioneering was the National Incident Management System, and that hadn't migrated east yet. Um, east still was thick with the Irish and Italian firefighters wearing big, thick mustaches to <laughs> screen out the smoke. You know, they they, they, they were still a little a little uh, prehistoric uh, firefighting stuff going on. So um, on 9-11, uh, NYPD and FDNY did not have comms with each other, and they couldn't communicate. And it was the Forest Service that finally got tapped, and they said, hey, you guys have National Incident Management System. Can you guys set up an org chart and start figuring out how to slot everybody in and uh, and track all of our resources and do all that stuff? And they were actually the ones that ran the scene. Nice. Yeah, kind, of, kind of funny little data point about yeah. how far we've come since 9-11. Okay, so now with all that aside, uh, Iman, hopefully I've given you enough time to think of your word. Uh, if you had to sum it up, one word uh, that describes nine eleven for you. All right, to me, it's resolve. Um, it's 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 that, and and when people would ask me, well, what do you mean resolve? Um, I will. I've always said, I even in police training, and 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 even I think I've written several times in, in havoc. Uh, will and resolve are. Are a formula for success uh, with anything you do, um, and that's the thing: is is people can show incredible will, 
but it's the resolve that sets them apart from the rest of the pack. Um, Marshall, what you described about, you know, the the, the uh, civilians who had no training whatsoever, who were able to do what they did on that day, same thing on Flight 93, and and uh, even after that, say, with my experiences watching, you know, looking at the Boston Marathon bombing and how civilians reacted to that is because of that will and resolve that we all have um or most of us have after 9 11 especially those that lived through 9 11 the veterans that have gone to war and come back after 9 11 yeah we all have physical or, or or mental wounds that we all deal with and but one thing never changes is that will and resolve hmm. and that's that's something that that i would uh i would throw out there to to people i love it i'm actually going to steal both of yours um because <laughs> that that sums it up uh, i think eloquently and, and appropriately. I think those are two great takeaways and two things I think it's worth saying that should never go out of style um, that make 9-11 worth remembering, whether it's the 20-year anniversary or you know, 53 years from now and it's not a sexy, even round number. You know, It, it still is worth remembering for those qualities. Mm. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Marshall, tell me about High Risk Soldier and why people should bother reading it. So, Iris Soldier is uh, written by uh, by a man named Taryn Wharton. Uh, Taryn's uh, army officer as well. Um, it's important to read that book because he uh, was also at West Point during 9-11. So, he commissioned knowing that he was going to go to war. And what it talks about is uh, his experiences as a young 20-year-old graduating, going to, going to combat, um, and seeing an immense amount of trauma. Uh, and... And how he was able to work through some of the unhealthy reactions to that trauma. Um, it is raw. It is a raw story. Um, I did not realize it at the time uh, until I read it that my, my classmate and my peer suffered so much. But what it did do was it helped me reflect on uh, the trauma that I had experienced. It helped me reflect on the trauma that others had experienced. Um, and as we've talked about, September 11th, 2001 is a traumatic day for thousands upon thousands of people um, who suffered um, so much violence and, and loss of connection. Um, and so to, to talk about the impact of that and the wars that followed that, you know, today, you know, you know, 9-11, the wars that followed 9-11, um, it is a raw and real personal history of uh, what war does to people uh, and, and how, um, you know, one soldier, one, one officer with, you know, displaying resolve, um, as Eamon talked about, but also displaying courage to address his problems, uh, got on the other side of that and is still to this day, incredibly successful and one of the best officers I know. So is he still in, he is still on active duty and he's, and, and he's, and he's, he's wildly successful. Um, and so I, I encourage, I encourage our listeners to, um, it's, it, the books on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, any of the, um, any of those sites, it's, it's called high risk soldier by Taryn Warden. Um, and it, you know, if I could put a tagline on it, it is a raw and real study of, uh, of, uh, traumatic stress in the, in the war on terror. I'm in, Tell me where things are with Project Sapient. Uh, for those that don't know, that's his podcast about law enforcement and the military to a lesser extent. Uh, how are things going over there? What's going on with you guys? Um, 
I can't believe how it's grown from uh, in under a year. Um, we're, we're, we're over 10,000 listeners worldwide, uh, mostly in the U S but, uh, it's, it, I couldn't believe, um, how it grew so fast. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing to see the emails that come through the messages that come through from, uh, whether it's law enforcement, military people who want to become cops, want to become firefighters, want to become, want to join the military, um, asking for guidance. I actually had a, uh, uh, a, a, um, <laughs> someone emailed us, um, who was on his way to basic, <laughs> he, he, it's too late. I told you, yeah, yeah. Soon enough. He, Good luck. He said, Talk to me in know, 12 he, weeks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He said, uh, but but it was amazing to me that because he he's a young kid listening to the show, and it's amazing for me to see. I mean, uh, the youngest listeners we have right now are junior in high school. Uh, last uh, some a kid that I actually talked to and met. Um, and it's just it's just amazing on how how it's grown. And spoiler alert: there may be in the dangerously near future a Marvel DC crossover <laughs> style episode between Project Sapien and us <laughs> yes. coming up uh, at the end of the month. So uh, yeah, so, further well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Vet yeah. to Vet and and what that's going to be about. Yep. So uh, Vet to Vet uh, was uh, basically uh, I, I created just like I created Project Sapient with a lot of drinking and was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. <laughs> so like true havoc, uh, true havoc style. <laughs> I was like, yeah, time to do something. But um, but after you know what happened in Afghanistan and then me reflecting back to ISIS and Iraq and watching you know ISIS roll through and everything, I it took you know all of us veterans have have expressed anger, frustration on how these things transpired and what, because we have that burden of knowledge of knowing we could prevent certain things, you know, because we know our, our capabilities in the military. Um, and with that mixed emotion, you know, uh, I, cr I decided to create an event called vet to vet, you know, for basically for us by us, right. Uh, where veterans can come together and I have veteran and law enforcement groups, uh, that have reached out that want to set up a booth or whatever um, at uh, at this event, and uh, and you know I've, we've ended up opening it up to uh, all veterans, first responders, Gold Star, White Star families uh, to uh, come down and kind of blow off steam, relax, uh, because you're amongst your peers. You know, you're you're amongst friends, you're amongst brothers, you're amongst sisters. We uh, spilled the same blood and the same mud for the past twenty years. So I, I I created this event, and it's gonna actually we're doing it. And I uh, spoke to uh, Chris and Charles, and we we decided that um, Havoc Journal, uh, the weekly Havoc, is gonna come up, and we're gonna do a joint uh, podcast while there talking to various veterans uh first responders whoever wants to uh you know chat we will uh we'll chat up ch chat it up laugh it up whatever what you know plug uh, certain veteran organizations that made a showing uh as as being sponsors um and uh and it's going to be a good time and it's going to be on the uh, 27th uh of this month of september uh it clearies in boston uh so and it's between 6 p.m on to whenever but uh 
but it's going to be a great time. And I guess I really starts at 2 a.m. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. After a little <laughs> bourbon and tequila mixed together, we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be on there. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, um, Marshall, you know, to your point where, where you said, hey, you know, the nomenclature may change, but the GWAT, you know, and the mission of the GWAT will continue. It is, I, I agree with you, but it is funny. Um, I think vet to vet, you know, which, you know, it, it didn't come from this place, but it seems like it is a, um, a coda to the GWAT almost. Mm-hmm. Don't you get that feeling, Iman, where it's like, you know, it's, it's like, hey, we're here because Afghanistan has just happened and it has just kind of put it somebody's put a bow on it not very well tied and probably won't stay there but regardless there's a bow on it right now and there is kind of a uh it's kind of a wake in in some respects and it kind of feels that way even though doctrinally that is not the case and even realistically that isn't the case that that obviously counter-terror is still going on and all that but it does feel like like a bit of a wake now for for the GWAT at least emotionally so yeah Really interesting event, and and I know I'll speak on behalf of Charlie if I can for this, but I know we're both really honored and privileged that we'll be there and um, have a big chaotic crossover episode with um, lots of inside jokes and uh, references that will fall flat and no one yeah, else will yeah. understand. And, it's got to be know, total chaos. Total chaos, yeah. I, I expect it to be a, a, a virtually unintelligible, loud a chaotic mess uh, that we'll have a great time at and our family will hug us and say that they understand regardless. All right, listen, Marshall, I'm in. Thank you guys for being here. This is really special. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate coming on. Man. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you do hosting this uh, podcast. It's wonderful. We do our best work when we're connected and you are part of that branch of connected. So thank you, Chris. Hey, that means a lot. Thanks, Marshall. Well, guys, um, to everyone else, you know the script. Subscribe if you haven't already. If you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. We welcome your questions, your comments, your snide remarks. But if you can attach them to a five-star review, that would be dynamite because the metrics do matter. Show notes. Uh, there will be some. Uh, certainly, there will be show notes about all of our plugs and the events that we have coming up. Um, and, of course, uh, High Risk Soldier and some of the things we want to talk about. Uh, I want to take a special moment, though, and give a shout out to four organizations that I want to plug, which is something I don't normally do. But right now, with everything that is going on in Afghanistan, uh, donations, funding, uh, even just understanding what's going on over there better is crucial. So I want to give a shout out to OperationRecovery.org. Again, that's OperationRecovery.org. Also, SaveOurAllies.org. No one left behind.org mm. and Pars Equality Center. Um, the first three, Operation Recovery, Save Our Allies, No One Left Behind, all are busy doing the noble work that you just heard described earlier in the episode, uh, especially by Iman when he was talking about veterans coming together and trying to affect. Uh, I don't even want to say change, affect life-saving operations in Afghanistan on behalf of our allies uh, that both he and Marshall spoke eloquently about. Well, those are three uh, tip-of-the-spear organizations that are doing that kind of work. And right now, your money is needed. And even if not your money, your awareness, your ability to share their mission and what they're trying to do over there is incredibly important. And I wanted to throw in PARS Equality Center. They are a legal firm that is handling an awful lot of refugee cases to allow those high-risk, uh, high-value targets that we're trying to uh, 
ensure are safe. Um, Afghans that really were our allies, literally people that actually served alongside us in special operations, even conventional forces. Uh, and they are high value targets to the Taliban. They are highly at risk now as refugees. Uh, so PARS Equality Center is accepting donations as well to help process their immigration packages and um, you know repay our debt of honor to them. So those show notes for those organizations and everything else that we mentioned will all be available at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or at Havoc Journal with the article I write that accompanies each one of these episodes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can scroll up or scroll down or whichever way you need to scroll, but you'll see all the show notes that are there. There will also be alibis for anything I misstated, misremembered, (laughs) something that needed more context. That also is an offer I always extend to our guests, although generally nobody takes me up on it because I'm the only one that brain farts or misspeaks in a way that I need to cover my own ass after. <laughs> As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Marshall McGurk and Iman Caffell. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos. And we we'll see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Thanks for the invite, Ned. Those are amazing questions. <laughs> yeah, is, yeah, those are. I'm like, like I, my, my mind feels stretched. That's good. Well, I'm, I'm gonna go drink some more because I'm, I'm way exhausted. So <laughs> <laughs> way to really deal with it. The problem is, Marshall, is that I'm, I'm used to Charlie mm. and his its practice stance of radical neutrality. So I, I've now learned to. Uh, I have to craft really good questions to get around the firewall, and so uh, <laughs> good. so yeah, it's uh, it's been good practice. 